Now let us turn together to the 123rd Psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm number 123. It is the fourth of these lovely songs of ascent that we are studying together on these Lord's Day mornings. Psalm 123, a song of ascent. I lift up my eyes to you, you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have, <clears throat> have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt, we have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Thus reads this short but lovely portion of God's inspired word. To his name be all praise given. Now, we are climbing on these Sunday mornings. We are steadily climbing together into what we hope and pray is a richer and deeper experience of the presence of God. And the purpose of our studying the, this particular portion of the book of Psalms, as you will readily recall this morning, is that they are in a very real sense a series of steps that lead us progressively and still more richly into the nearer presence of God. We considered the first of these steps a number of Sunday mornings ago in Psalm number 120, where in the midst of the most vexatious and troublesome <clears throat> surroundings, the man of God, the psalmist, called out for deliverance to the Lord. And with that cry of the thirsty soul, you remember, began the great pilgrimage toward Zion. And you recall that the second step that this man took followed in Psalm 121, where he lifted up his eyes and looked to the Lord, in whom his true security finally lay. And in the third step last Sunday morning, he was seen delighting in the prospect of being in the Lord's house. And that great anticipation of standing within the very courts and portals of Jerusalem filled him with an intensity of joy and delight in the Lord. Now, when we come to Psalm 123, which is before us this morning, it is a psalm you will notice at once in great contrast to where we were last Lord's Day morning, in place of that joy that characterized Psalm 122 and the devout prayer that ascended from the psalmist's lips, and the longing for God in his house and in his temple that were frequently repeated. In place of these things, we are faced rather with a sigh, and an upward glance to God, and another sigh at the end of the psalm. And it seems as though that from the heights of devout gladness, in Psalm 122, we have been taken into the very depths 
again. And I'm sure that the reason is this, beloved, that though we may with joyful anticipation rejoice in the thought of the presence of God and in anticipation of that experience, we still need to come down to the stern realities of our daily struggle in the pilgrim path that is this world. And that's why this psalm is here. But it is another step up to the Lord's presence. And oh, what progress we make in the four lovely verses or standards of this remarkable portion of God's word in the Psalter. Now let me say to you, before we begin to look at these verses severally and together, let me say this to you, that the beauty of this psalm is that it reflects the moods of our own souls. Not only are we uplifted in our pilgrimage toward the heavenly Zion, so that our hearts flow out to the Lord in adoration and praise, but there are those moods of the soul also when there is turbulence within us, where we feel the pressures of an ungodly world bearing us down, where we are plunged, as it were, from the very heights into the very depths of the soul as well. And this song so faithfully reflects that condition. The many moods of the Christian soul are found here in the Psalter. Now let me ask you this morning, how often have you felt this way, my dear friend? It's been a recent bereavement that has clouded your horizons with gloom and sorrow. It's been a tragic accident that has happened within your family circle and plunged you almost to the verge of despair as you cried out to the Lord, why has this happened to me and at this time of all times? It is a student as you are facing a new academic year or the prospect of very difficult examinations. It's in your home a sudden and unexpected domestic problem has arisen that you simply cannot cope with and you are crying out to the Lord. It is as a Christian in the pilgrim way, experiencing the scorn and the hatred and the opprobrium of those who have no sympathy with you as you travel in the ways of Zion, and you feel perplexed, and you feel alone and deserted almost. It is something, perhaps, that weigh upon your heart this morning that you would not care even to share with the person sitting in the pew next to you. And I say to you, in these and other manifold conditions of the soul, this song is yours this morning. It is a death scan on devotion. It is a psalm whose very theme and center is in looking to the Lord, above all our troubles and discouragement of the pilgrim way, where the anticipation of the presence and glory of God fills us far more than any troubles that we may experience here upon the earth. 
Lift up your eyes, says the psalmist, to the throne of God, where all is done well and in perfect love and in divine perfection. So that you see as we look at this psalm together, there are three things concerning which it speaks to us. And the first is this. It tells us, surely, of the watching eye. In verse 1, I lift my eyes to you, says this godly man, to you whose throne is in heaven. Now we don't know the precise circumstances out of which this portion of the Psalter was written. Some of the commentators suggest that it may have been written in the reign of Hezekiah, that great and godly king of Judah, at the time, you remember, when the Assyrians were pressing in upon him and across the borders of his land, and finally they had come to invest, to siege Jerusalem itself. And in the 18th chapter of the second book of Kings, we have that amazing account of how the city was surrounded and how Hezekiah was prostrate before the Lord. And as he took that letter of threatening from the Rabshakeh, the commander of the Assyrian army, and laid it out before the Lord, his heart cried out and said, O Lord, only you can deliver us out of the blaspheming hand of these ungodly men. And it may have been out of such a situation but the psalmist was lifting his eye up to the Lord. It may have been much later in the history of Israel, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when you remember the enemies of God again were seeking to frustrate the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple. And Sanballat the Horonite and Geshem the Arabian and Tobiah, that other enemy of the Lord, mocked and scorned the people of God under Nehemiah, and said of that wall that arose in such painful circumstances, stone by stone and block by block, they said, why, even if a fox goes up on it, it will break it down in pieces. Now, whatever the circumstances may have been, we do know that they were such that at the end of the psalm, as you look at verses 3 and 4, there is the twice-repeated cry from this man's soul, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt, the ridicule of the proud, the contempt of the arrogant. And this is the background to the watching eye. But I want you to notice, but here is a remarkable thing. You see, he doesn't begin this psalm with a precise account of his trouble, does he? The limited reference to his troubles, whatever the circumstances may have been, are not at the beginning of the psalm, but at the end of the psalm. And the reason is this, that he has learned that whatever situation he is in, in this world and in this life, the one thing that he must do 
is not allow these circumstances to drive him to the brink of despair. You see, we would expect the picture in verse 1 of a man whose eyes were downcast, turned down to the ground, just as your eyes and mine so often are when life is very hard for us and there are difficulties in the pilgrim way and we are discouraged and depressed. Our eyes are naturally downcast. We look down. But the remarkable thing is that we are treated in verse 1 to a picture of a man whose eyes are not down, but up to the Lord. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in the heavens. You see, he begins by looking to God in this great declaration of faith and confidence that what is important in his situation is not the enemies and not the scorn and the contempt and the arrogance of ungodly men. But what is important is not that he should look around or even that he should look within, but that he should look above. And oh, my dear friends in the Christian church, we have so often lost this perspective in the midst of difficult times and discouraging circumstances. We have lost the sense of what our forefathers called the Sursum Corda. That great phrase in the services of the Episcopalian Church that exhorts us to lift up our hearts to the Lord. And immediately from the congregation, there is the answering response, Our hearts, O Lord, we lift up to thee. Now this is what this man is doing, you see. And in it, I think, there are three things that we need to notice. And the first is this. But that uplifted look expresses a sense of his dependency. I lift up my eyes to you who are enthroned in heaven, he says. Now you see, this naturally and instinctively represents the state of heart which fixes all its hope and confidence and expectation in the Lord. There is what? A sense of his dependency. Now this should be very interesting to us. Because, you know, it's the one thing that men and women will not do today unless they are Christians and believers in the Lord of glory, in this great God who is the God of the psalmist's salvation, who is his only helper. It is only the man of God and the woman of God and the believing child who can look up to the Lord in this way. And it's very interesting to me, and I think I've shared this with you before, that the Greek word for man is the word anthropos. And it's formed of two separate Greek words, ana, meaning up, and theoreo, the Greek word to look, or to see, or to behold. And so in the very Greek word for man is the description of him as the uplooker. And why this is so interesting and significant is this. But you see, even in our word for man, there is the recognition, almost unconsciously, 
But God has so constituted us that we should naturally be able to look up. Now, when you think of it, it's a profound truth. None of the other primates that God has made, the apes and the baboons and the gorillas, can look up as we do. They don't stand on their hind feet as we do. They go about usually on all fours and occasionally stand up so that their natural status is to look down. But man is different. God has made him as anthropos, the uplooker, who naturally and physiologically should be able to look up to the source of his help in need and the source of his salvation. Now, as I say to you, the tragedy of our world today is that man does not look up. And when man does not look up, he becomes like those primates that I have described, and his world becomes like a man-centered jungle of horror. And the great need that you and I have is to express that sense of our dependence upon the Lord. Unto thee, I who am the uplooker, whom you have made naturally to be able to look up, I will look up to the Lord in dependence upon him in all of my needs. Now you see the second thing that it surely expresses to us is this, the sense of God's sovereignty. Do you notice that immense length of focus that the psalmist introduces us to in verse 1? I look up, he says, to you enthroned in the heavens. Now what is he doing here? Well, he's doing something very interesting. You see, he's taking all his troubles together, and he's setting them in a big enough context for him to see them in a proper context. He's looking at them, in other words, under the perspective of the sovereignty of God. And he's saying, however difficult my situation, however desperate the circumstances I'm passing through, what I am aware of fundamentally is not the circumstances but the sovereign God who is enthroned in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. And his gaze is above the circumstances to God, who in fruitful wisdom will no doubt work out everything for the psalmist's good and for God's own glory. It speaks to us of dependence upon the Lord. It speaks to us of the sovereignty of God in the affairs of his servants. And I'm reminded, as I think I've shared with you before on one occasion, from the life and biography of the missionary Adoniram Judson, one of the great American missionaries sent out from these shores in the 19th century to the land of Burma, a land then closed to the gospel of Christ. I'm reminded of that remarkable incident in the life of Judson, when he had been imprisoned and he was lying there in a bamboo hut with his legs strung together and roughly thrown over a bamboo pole, and he was lying on his back in the fetid mud of the hut. And an unbelieving trader came in to visit him, 
and said to him mockingly, Judson, what is the future of the Church of God in Burma now? And without a moment's hesitation, Adoniram Judson replied, The future of the Church in Burma, sir? Why, it is as bright as the promises of God. And probably you're reminded too of the sovereignty of God in the life of a more contemporary Christian lady. Joni Erickson, who being interviewed on a Christian radio station on one occasion about a paraplegic condition, the result, you remember, of diving into a pool with insufficient water in it, and she's paralyzed from the neck down. She responded to the question that was asked her, how do you feel about the providence of God that has brought you into this sad condition? She said, I'd rather be in a wheelchair and no Christ than standing on my own two feet without him. The sense of God's sovereignty in all the affairs and circumstances of our lives. But you see, the third thing is a sense of God's greatness in this uplifted eye. He feels how great this God is. He speaks of him as one whose throne is in heaven. Beloved, you know what is wrong with the church today? Our God is too small. And yet this very thought of this psalm, we are encouraged to take into our own relationship with God in prayer. Our Lord taught us this in that pattern prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we occasionally repeat together in this congregation. How does it begin? Not with focus upon our needs, but focus upon the greatness of God. Our Father, Jesus, taught us to pray. What? Who art in heaven? Hallowed be thy name. What is this, beloved, if it is not the upward look, the watching eye in New Testament terms, our Father who art in heaven? And it conveys to us immediately the sense of God's greatness. And oh, I say to you this morning, that as we apply these things to our own lives, we need to go out into this world every day with the uplifted eye among men and women who mostly are walking our streets and going about their daily business with a downcast eye, overburdened by the problems of their lives and their marriages and their homes and their businesses, and feeling the weight of a fading and perishing world upon them. We need to go out into such a society with the uplifted eye but says, I am living at a different level and on a different plane with a dependence upon a great and almighty God and a sense of his sovereignty in my life and a holy sense of God's almightiness that pervades my soul. And you see, when we go about like that, we begin to bear the fragrance and the testimony of another world. And men and women begin to say to us, 
here is someone who is different. And the accountability of this difference is that he and she is a pilgrim on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy Zion. My friend, is this how you are living? Are you seeing God through your enemies and above your enemies so that he is no little God to you, but a very great God indeed? Let it be our firm resolve then that the heavenly glance shall never be lacking the watching eye. Now do you notice, secondly, that he brings to us the thought of the waiting heart in verse 2. And the imagery is suddenly changed. And he brings to us a very beautiful and eloquent picture. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Now it's a very eloquent eloquent picture, as I say, for this reason, that it seems to be a visual guide to how we should approach the Lord in the second way, not only with the watching eye, but now with the waiting heart. And you can almost imagine this psalmist, together perhaps with his wife, having been invited to the home of a very rich man to a banquet. And what does he see there? as he's seated as a guest at this man's table, when he sees the host sitting at the head of the table and discreetly lining the wall are many of the host's servants, his slaves. Both male and female slaves would be there. And as the meal progresses, he begins to marvel at the fact that these slaves cannot see the plates emptying on the table in front of the guests. They cannot see what's going on there on the table. But impeccably, as one plate is empty, a slave is there at the side of the guest, ready to fill it again, or to put on the new course. And he wonders, how do they know that there are these needs? And the mystery is solved when he realizes that they're not watching the guests or the table at all, they are watching the hand of their master at the head of the table. One finger thrown down, another one uplifted, a glance of the eye, a nod of the head, and they know instinctively what to do. This is the picture of verses 2 of, of verse 2. And you see, it's a wonderful illustration of what the believer must do before the Lord with his waiting heart. We need to wait upon the Lord for the slightest indication of his holy will. One finger thrown down, one finger raised up. A twitch, as it were, of his arm, a glance of his head. We must be in a position where we can see the Lord and attend to his most holy will. And that is the focus of this verse, in verse 2. It is a picture of the waiting heart that is ready to give immediate recognition of the slightest sign of the Master's will. 
Now surely it speaks to us of direction from God and discipline before him. Now why do I say that? Because we need direction from him in this pilgrimage here upon the earth. There are men who scorn the church of God. There are the arrogant and the proud who mock us on the way to Zion's heavenly court. And in the midst of all these trying circumstances through which we may pass, we must wait for direction from God's hand. We dare not move without a motion of that hand. We dare not quarrel with the direction on which he is tending. And it speaks too to us of the discipline that we need in waiting before God. Do you notice at the end of verse 2 that the psalmist has a qualifying clause until he shows us his mercy? Well, how long will that be? And the answer is we don't know. We need to have that discipline of waiting upon the delays that he may order and command. That business partnership that you may be thinking of entering into, that marriage partnership, that call to Christian service that the Lord is laying upon your heart to be a deacon or an elder or to be called into the preaching ministry of the church. You need to wait upon the Lord and have that discipline of being long in his presence, that he may make absolutely clear to you the way in which his hand is certainly leading you. Your concern, for instance, about the state of the church as your heart goes out to him, as you see the gates of Zion burned with fire and its walls derelict and broken down, and oh, you long again that his spirit might be poured out upon his church. Beloved, we need to wait upon him that he may show his mercy to us again. We have a God not only upon whom we watch but a God upon whom we wait as well because only he can do it. Now the scriptures abound with many instances that show us whenever the saints of God have waited on the Lord, their example has been worthy of earnest consideration by God's people. And one of the characteristics of Daniel, one of the characteristics of Hezekiah, one of the characteristics of Nehemiah, the godly governor of Israel, the agent used for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, one of the great characteristics of all these men and others is that in time of greatest need, they had learned to come before God with the watching eye and the waiting heart. They dared not move without and beyond the direction of their God. They waited for his hand to be upraised, for his finger to be thrown down. And then when they acted, the Lord met them with great and profound blessing. 
My dear friend, let me ask you this morning, do you know that absolute submission to the hand of God, whether it wields a rod that beats upon your life, or whether it is a hand that is outstretched with loving gifts for you, or whether it is a hand that points to new service for you to undertake, is this attitude that so befits the saint of God your attitude? Do you count it an honor not only to be a son, but beloved to be a servant as well that waits upon him? Oh, I say to you today, stand where you can see him. Have your gaze fixed upon him. Look with patient trust and eager willingness to the unfolding of his will and be ready to start the activity when he indicates by his royal command. That's what we're to do, the waiting heart. Now thirdly, as I draw to a close, there is the worn-out spirit in verses 3 and 4. Do you see it there? Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, he cries out. And in Hebrew, wherever something is repeated, it is the Hebrew way of emphasis. And it shows to us, as Martin Luther says in commenting upon these verses, the deep sigh of a pained heart which looks round on all sides and seeks friends and protectors and comforters but can find none. Therefore it says, Where shall I, a poor, despised man, find refuge? I am not so strong as to be able to preserve myself. Wisdom and plans fail me among the multitude of adversaries who assault me. Therefore, I come to thee, O my God, to thee I lift my eyes, O thou who dwellest in the heavens. Now what do we see here in these final two verses of the psalm? Well, it's a picture of the worn-out spirit, isn't it? It's as though everybody, says the psalmist, has got me in his gun sights. I'm in trouble. There's discouragement and disappointment and sickness and perhaps a deep and wasting sorrow of the soul. I'm hemmed in around by all of them, just like Hezekiah was hemmed in by the armies of the Rabshakeh who proudly and arrogantly boasted, I have shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird is shut up in a cage. Here is the urgency of the situation. You see his language there in verses 3 and 4 where he says, in effect, I've had enough. I'm sated. I'm exceedingly filled. I've had as much as I can take. It's almost the Hebrew equivalent of our modern phrase, I'm fed up. And that is the urgency of his situation, of the object of banter and scorn and the sarcastic, cutting remark and the blasphemy against God and the contempt for God's people. Why are you a pilgrim on the road to Zion when this world has so much to offer you? And this continues, my dear friends, to be as applicable 
all persecuted in the church today for righteousness sake, as ever it was for this godly pilgrim to Zion under the old covenant. Let me ask you this morning, do you feel this? Are you a student at school and you're being rough-handed because of your Christian testimony? Are you in university and because your life is different, people poke fun at you? Are you in business and your business companions find it strange that you have the interest that you have as a member of a Christian church and you begin to be the butt end of obscene jokes? This is what he's talking about and worse in this song. But you see what it has done to him, beloved. There is no breach of his submission to God. He's turned this shrinking away from the words of men into a means of supplication before God. He's turned his lamentation and bitterness into mighty appeal to the throne of grace. And I have to say to you still that God let his servants make known their moans and complaints to him that he may know how full their souls are of men's scorn and take pity on them. And the psalmist knows, you see, that the only way to rise above these things is to find his way into the presence of God Again, do you notice that? It's as though he's saying in the midst of all these complaints, this is how I feel, but I know the way out, and I'm taking the way out. My eyes, even in these complaints, are directed not to my troubles, but to the God who reigns above every circumstance in which I am caught, the watching eye, the waiting heart, the answer to the worn-out spirit. Now then, as I finish, what shall we say to all these things? My dear friend, part of the pilgrimage to Zion is not only the holy anticipation of standing within the courts of Jerusalem, but part of our pilgrimage is to walk the lonely pilgrim path, to endure the taunts and storms of unbelievers, to know in our own souls the depression and afflictions of a fallen world, and in that situation to be quickened by God's Spirit to look to the Lord. What progress is made in this song? Shall we not say then as we finish, Lord, banish all downcast looks from me, your servant, today. Take from me the fear of the face of men. Enlarge my faith to look up to you, to be revived in your presence. To live in the light of that countenance that banishes all my doubts into oblivion. You see, when we find ourselves in that position, 
then we're going to be able to say with the hymn writer Paul Gerhardt, What though thou rulest not, yet heaven and earth and hell proclaim God sitteth on the throne and doeth all things well. Leave to his sovereign sway to rule and to command, so shalt thou wondering own how wise, how strong is thou. Sursum corda, lift up your hearts to the Lord. We lift them up, O Lord, to thee. A death stand on the death the watching eye. The waking heart, the worn out spirit. Our Father in heaven, how filled with heavenly good are these ancient portions of the Psalter, and we long even to approximate to something of the godliness and the maturity of faith and confidence of hope that these men truly have. Enable us, O Lord, to offer for thee this descent upon the theme of devotion as we too like him look to the Lord for Jesus' sake. Amen.